Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Happy Hour History. So even though today is Monday, um, Hispanic Heritage Month starts on Wednesday because September 15th is actually Mexican Independence Day. And it's pretty fitting um, because Mexico is very, very important for the history of the Americas and also for the revolutionary history of the Americas, which I'll explain a little bit today. So that's what I wanted to focus on for this episode. So I used to teach a class called Comparative Americas, and I did Comparative Americas early, well, early Comparative Americas, and then I also did Modern. So um, it was just broken down into two classes for timeline purposes, but Modern was my favorite. And I was always surprised by how little people knew of Latin American history and even Mexican history as it relates to the United States. So Mexico and the United States have always maintained a relationship, especially a business relationship, even after the Mexican-American War in 1846. And Mexico had opened up the Texas, which of course then it was known as Tejas territory, to Catholic immigrants from the United States under the condition that they did not bring any enslaved people because Mexico had outlawed slavery in 1829. So... Um, they just wanted to beef up the number of Catholics that they had living on the land. And so that's why they opened it up for, you know, Americans to come in um, as long as they were Catholic. But true to form, the U.S. moved in. So did a lot of non-Catholics. And they did want to keep their slaves and bring slaves into that territory. So they had the Mexican-American War and then took California, New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, and the rest of Texas as the spoils of war from Mexico. And that was solidified in 1848. So the United States is intertwined with Mexico, and I think that it always will be, even though many of our politicians and a lot of people fuel this xenophobic fire by pretending as though we're not in a mutually beneficial relationship. And by beneficial, I mean the government and the government officials of the U.S. and Mexico, because obviously this doesn't necessarily benefit the working class or the average citizens of either country. So it would be great to start, I guess, first with the presidency of Porfirio Diaz. So the United States gained a huge foothold in Mexico during the Diaz presidency, known as the Porfiriato, and that included operating businesses and owning land in the country. So the, not many U.S. corporations went down into Mexico. A lot of um, wealthy Americans went into Mexico and bought up land for personal use, et cetera, and bought it from the government and owned it like outright. Like today, it's not that way, right? I think they gave you like a 99-year lease. Back then, it was just, you know, you could just have it forever. It didn't matter that you weren't a citizen of Mexico. So Diaz, like many Latin American countries, allowed the U.S. to control them um, government-wise, be really involved um, economically, etc., in exchange for the riches that the upper and ruling class were able to make off of that relationship. So when Spain, as a colonial power, lost their strength in Latin America due to the independence movements in their colonies, like Mexico, Cuba, Colombia, etc., they destroyed the infrastructure on their way out. Therefore, people couldn't extract the natural resources to fund their new government and solidify their place in a capitalist society and with world trade. So the United States funded much of that rebuilding of the infrastructure in exchange for usually 85% of the natural resources that were extracted and then 85% ownership of the resources even in the ground. So that hadn't been extracted yet. Now, the important natural resources for Mexico were 
I mean, there are a lot of them, right? But petroleum, because we were growing our Navy at that time in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and we would need petroleum for that. Also, you know, the car industry had taken off around that same time. Copper was an important natural resource from Mexico that we wanted to use to grow our network of intercontinental and world telegraph and telephone lines as communications um, were taking, you know, had hugely increased and you need copper for those things. And then iron ore from Mexico for our industrializing major cities. This also meant the United States was intertwined with the Mexican government to ensure that they would subjugate their own people to make sure that money was being made for the American corporations that were doing that business in Mexico. So the same eugenics and racial hierarchy, you know, um, commonly known as Darwinism, that the United States maintained was also enforced within Mexico and, again, much throughout Latin America, well, pretty much all of it. So Diaz and his ruling class claimed ancestry to Spain and were therefore considered white people, right? Um, they spent the 15% that they did make on the business deals with the United States on themselves, their wives, doing things like paving the roads in their neighborhoods, buying French clothing for their um, wives and children, wearing three-piece wool suits that they bought from Europe, which is ridiculous because Mexico City is in the tropics, so it's very hot and humid. But again, it was a way to claim that European ancestry and to show that they were modern and essentially that they were European. They also spent a lot of money on European-style art and architecture. Um, if you look at a lot of the cities of that time, like Mexico City, Buenos Aires, you'd almost swear that you were looking at a picture of Paris because the architecture is very, very similar. And again, they did that to try to claim that European ancestry to show that they were the descendants of the conquerors, so to speak. And they're just applying that same Darwinist model to their own population of people. They're saying that they're more fit to rule because they're the descendants of the Europeans that, you know, right. They are positioning themselves in the social Darwinism hierarchy as the whites. Therefore they have the power and they're the only ones who can adequately rule or manage the country. So they considered the indigenous to be the burden of their civilizations. And I mean, indigenous groups, or sometimes you'll see them referred to in documentaries and readings as the Indians or the Indios. Um, they consider them to be their burden of civilization. And if you've ever read Rudyard Kipling's The White Man's Burden, it's a poem. You know, Rudyard Kipling wrote another popular book, um, The Jungle Book, which most of us w grew up watching, at least the animated Disney film. But the natives were seen as the burden of their society. And of course, the black descendants in Latin America were also seen as the burden as well. And because they're seen as the burden, there is justification that it's okay to work them for very low wages. And really, it's very similar to how black Americans in the U.S. were subjugated under Jim Crow and black codes, etc. And again, these are things, things are happening concurrently. They're happening at the same time, which is really interesting. And I'll sort of explain in a second. But um, just to give you some ideas to what the working class people in Mexico were dealing with. So this is the indigenous and people who were poor, the poorer people of society known as peones a lot of the times, if you're doing any um, research about it. The Mexican government forced those populations to work for 25 cents a day in like the U.S. backed mines. 25 cents per day. So they were paid in U.S. money, which is also very important. Right? I'll explain in a second. 
even when there were Americans who worked in those same jobs, they would usually be, you know, the managers or supervisors. And even when they were doing the same work as the Mexican citizens, they were paid much more money. So there wasn't even equal pay. Um, and, you know, of course, like they were guests in Mexico, but they're being paid more than the Mexican citizens. Um a lot of these people could be dragged out of their homes if they were caught at home and not at work, um, even under the threat of being whipped. So it's much the same way. And like I said, with the black codes where you have the black population in the South being where it's illegal for them to not have employment, it's essentially illegal for the Mexican citizens to not be at work. Their bodies were not ever able to just be at rest. And that is why you hear some people say today things like, you know, rest is revolutionary because it really is like most people's ancestors weren't able to just be like, you know what, I'm going to just do nothing today. I'm just going to stay home. I'm not feeling like it. I don't feel like going out or I'm going to use my sick time and stay in from work. That's really important. And sometimes the peones would be paid in receipts that were only redeemed redeemable at the haciendas where they worked. So a hacienda is a plantation. It's just, you know, a translation. So they couldn't even spend their hard-earned money in their own communities to build their own wealth or invest in their own people. And like I said, because they were paid in U.S. currency, that also stopped them from being able to easily um, convert the money, right? Because you lose money when you do a conversion, and it wouldn't have been easy for them to even get to a place where they could. Okay, so this is just more exploitation onto these people at that time. And the, again, the Mexican government allowed that mistreatment because of the wealth that the elite, like Diaz, or if you do more research, um, Emilio Kosterlitsky, which is his right-hand man, they're all benefiting from this. So they're allowing it to happen, again, because they're not thinking about these other Mexican citizens as you know, people who they need to take care of, they look at them as the burden of society and they're only there to do the work so that the wealthy can maintain their um, lifestyles. So the Mexican revolution in 1917 was done to end those things and to end that oppression. And the Mexican revolution inspired other Latin countries to do the same thing, to overthrow their oppressors so that they could benefit from their own labor resources and build a more equal society. And it's actually kind of cool because while in exile in Cuba, Fidel Castro um, was living in Mexico City and that's where he met Che Guevara. So a lot of active and exiled revolutionaries had made their way to Mexico to learn from that revolution and from the revolutionaries and then used it to go back home to um, continue their revolutions where they were from. And, you know, I was reading about how Che was racist and, you know, you may hear people, especially now that people have more access to information and are sort of calling out even amongst people who are known as being revolutionaries, but just how they're, you know, very anti-immigrant like Cesar Chavez or, you know, racist like Che. It's not surprising that Che would have been a racist, um, because he was from a wealthy family in Argentina. <laughs> and those of us who are familiar with Argentina, Argentinians are notorious colorists and anti-indigenous and anti-black. So I remember when I had read that, I was like, okay, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, all right, well, it's important to note. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's also, I mean, it, it makes sense, okay? Um, of course, there are people who think that holidays celebrating the history of people or communities of color or ethnic groups is wrong, right? I mean, of course, there's always someone, even if they're not telling you, right? Like, well, why do we need 
this month? Why do we need a Hispanic Heritage Month? Or why do we need a a Black History Month or a Women's History Month? But I want to remind you that Mexican Americans were penalized for, and you know, all these groups, but we're talking about this one. Mexican Americans were penalized for showcasing their culture in the United States, right? They were lynched and killed for doing things like speaking Spanish, showcasing aspects of their culture, right? Doing their cultural dances or having their cultural parties. They were penalized and killed for those things. So having Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States is important because it allows these people to have their unique national displays of culture in a country that used to kill them for doing that. Well, not national, right? It allows them to have their cultural representation while also reveling in their um, pride of being American citizens, but having ties to other countries. So it's sort of a reparation to allow people to enjoy those things and not be penalized or killed or have to worry about being attacked for doing it. Um, much like I said, you know, other groups, but even Diwali, some of you may have heard, maybe I'm saying it wrong. I don't know if it's Diwali or Diwali the way you say it, but it's an Indian holiday, right? So you have, I know Balboa Park used to have like a huge Diwali festival every year. And it was, you know, a time where you could get like try different food, right? They'd have like people doing henna setups. You had a lot of the people who were um, from India, India and American, or maybe had family come out who they, you know, they would dress up in their cultural clothes and have like their ceremony. And it's done as a way to um, enlighten non-Indian groups and serve for Indian groups and Indian Americans to be able to enjoy aspects that are unique to their culture, even though they're in the United States. So um, after the American Revolution and the new constitution of Mexico in 1919, Mexico nationalized its businesses and institutions, which is why even today we have like Pemex, right, which is Mexican Petroleum, or Banamex, which is the Bank of Mexico, um, and maintained the majority ownership rather than allowing the United States to have that majority. And other nations followed suit, which is why I was saying that Mexico is important for the continuation of the revolutions in throughout Latin America and, you know, Central and Southern Hemisphere, because other people did the same thing after Mexico successfully did that. So in that way, they were trailblazers. Today, Coca-Cola Corporation and Walmart are large employers in Mexico. And I think um, Mexico is the lar- one of the largest employers in Mexico. And But those nations you know, get the majority vote for the labor practices and leases. So whereas before the U.S. part of Walmart might own like 50 or 60 or even 85 percent, now it's um, usually 49, 51. So the U.S. will have 49 percent of the say of the corporation in that country, but that country has the 51 percent of say over the corporation and like what they do. So it's also important to note that the United States attempted to throw an embargo on Mexico back in 1919 once they nationalized, well, before 1919, but once they nationalized and kicked us out, um, but it was short-lived because Mexico threatened to sell their nationalized petroleum to Germany um, during World War I. So like I said, it kind of happened before 1919 and even at the same time. And that would go against the Monroe Doctrine, which was established in 1823, which is when the United States told Europe that, you know, we, quote unquote, we, the United States, were in control of Latin America and that they needed to come through the U.S., um, like they needed to communicate with the United States government before they infiltrated in the hemisphere 
and I mean the whole hemisphere, the Western hemisphere, so all of Latin America. So had World War I not happened, Mexico may have had an embargo on it, much like Cuba continues to have to this day. Because, of course, again, true to form, once a group says, hey, you know, we want to benefit from our own capitalism and not give 85% of the money to you, we're willing to pay you for the land that we, you know, are kicking you off of, but you got to get the hell out of here. Um the United States told all their friends not to trade with them, right? So Mexico had all these great natural resources that the world wanted, but nobody was buying it. So like I said, it was a short-lived embargo, but history may have been different had, you know, it was allowed, had it been allowed to go through. So um, I think that's enough for today. A great documentary I would recommend is The Storm That Swept Mexico, which is available for free to watch on YouTube, um, if you just type in the storm that swept Mexico, it's usually the first one that pops up. The first 15 minutes are what I have my students watch because it, you know, drives home the point of the stuff, like in short that I was just talking about. But the whole documentary is great. It does a really great job of explaining the U.S. history um, of involvement with Mexico and also the fighting spirit of the Zapatistas who fought to liberate Mexico from the United States, right, and to be able to benefit and have self-determination, representation in their own government to stop the Mexican government from exploiting them. And it's, I mean, it's a really cool documentary. I totally recommend that. There are other books too, but I can't think of them off the top of my head, which is pretty rare for me because I usually have like a catalog of books in my head. Um, but if you're interested, you can reach out to me and we can talk about books. So have a great day and I'll see you on the next episode. I really appreciate everyone for listening. Have a great one. Bye.